Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to do, we're going to start out by doing something that we've done before, but haven't done for a while. I'm going to get you to turn to your neighbor, any old neighbor, and you're going to repeat after me. So turn to your neighbor. I see when people aren't turning to their neighbors. Don't look at me. I'm just, Dave, don't worry about it. Now repeat after me. Neighbor, oh neighbor, the church is full of hypocrites. But there's always room for one more. Amen. <laughs> Truth hurts, don't it? Anyway, five or six years ago, my family and I lived in Revelstoke. You may know it, a cozy little mountain town in BC's interior. One day, a group of environmentally conscious people approached our church wanting to partner with it in the establishment of a community garden where anyone could rent a plot to grow and harvest their own vegetables. The church had a nice big lawn that wasn't used by the church very often, so it seemed like the perfect opportunity for the church to show its commitment, A, to care for God's creation, and B, it also seemed like the perfect opportunity to connect with the wider unchurched community, especially in our search, our hunt for the church's white whale, those elusive young families. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> anyway. So every few days, I'd bike down to the church, check our carrots, clip some lettuce, nurture some kale, maybe whisper to it a little bit, and gradually I'd meet all sorts of different people involved in the garden. And one day, I walked out of the church, and there was this hemp-clad young woman in her early 20s, dreadlocked, hair down to probably past the middle of her back, digging up celery root. And I remember one thing about the conversation we had, and nothing really else. She said the thing she loved the most about the community garden was the community. It was the community. She liked the community part of community garden. The community that formed around that little plot of land. We're just so different from each other, she said. There's all kinds of people, young and old, richer, poorer kids. We're eating together, having great conversations, 
having potlucks. It's just so hard to find community like this. So clearly, what drew her wasn't just the garden, but it was what the garden created. What drew her was the community. The garden created a community. There was a hunger that food alone couldn't satisfy. The hunger for community and deeper relationships, people who care and share their life together. And this is one of the most prevalent hungers people in our highly connected, shifting mobile world have, the hunger for deep community. In fact, I'd say that people my age or younger, and please, those of you who are my age or younger, please feel free to correct me after the sermon. Um, uh, regardless of what they think about religion and what their beliefs are, this is the most attractive thing about church, this idea of deeper relationships and loving community. Several people have said that, well, it's the community that I'm interested in. But you know there was a deep irony here in this conversation that me and this young woman were having, this beautiful talk about deeper relationships, building community, diverse people gathered around a common purpose, and it all went on in the shadow on the underutilized property of a church building. A place where most church people, at least, would describe as having all of these things. Loving, caring relationships, different people gathering around a common purpose, and of course, potlucks. So many potlucks. And yet, in spite of this deep hunger, she'd probably never be caught dead in a church. Her hunger, she was finding her hunger satisfied outside the church's walls. Like, literally. Like, just outside the church's walls. Why do you think that is? Why, if there's this obvious deep hunger that people have, why aren't you kind of like fighting with people? every Sunday to get inside the church doors, you know? Instead of ushers, we need like bouncers or something like that. It's my dream one day, one day. Is it in the budget for this year? I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Dave's already applied. Um, <laughs> and even more, why aren't they fighting to be on church committees? That's the one that really I can't get, actually. There are a lot of reasons. But a main one in my estimation, and maybe because I was one of those people, is that most churches sound a lot like the church in Corinth. A lot like the community that the Apostle Paul addresses in this morning's scripture passage. This is a very nice scripture passage, sounds very nice to our ears, but it gets to a community that is far from nice underneath. Paul starts our letter out by referring to this community as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. But once you find out what's going on in the congregation, you realize that these people sound like anything but saints. The label on the outside doesn't seem to fit the people on the inside. Paul was a church planter. He grew this church from scratch three years before, 
And Corinth was a big commercial hub, so they had all kinds of different people gathered, kind of like the community garden. Rich, poor, locals, immigrants, Jews and Gentiles, a pretty remarkable thing if you think about it. But soon enough, soon enough, things started to fall apart. Soon they were forming factions, throwing their lot in with one prominent elder over another. They were fighting about everything, from tablecloths and decorations. I added that part. Maybe it's a little creative, a little creativity there. But uh, tablecloths and decorations, details over doctrine. Some saw themselves as spiritually superior to others because they were blessed with the gift of speaking in tongues. And if they weren't fighting over doctrine or speaking in tongues, they were getting drunk off the wine at the Lord's table. And when they weren't getting drunk, they were sleeping around. Paul says a little later that their sexual behavior was so shocking, even by the standards of the open-minded, libertine pagans of Corinth, that they were shocked. I don't know if this is what most people think of when they hear the words loving community, a really loving community. So you could imagine what this would look like to their neighbors. You could imagine that the spiritually hungry noticed that these folks were hungry for just about anything but spirituality. These so-called saints didn't look like saints at all. They looked like holy hypocrites. And truth be told that this is a big reason why a lot of the folks, or this is what a lot of the folks who are out on the outside of the church think about it. Maybe you even on the inside of the church think about it this way. A common criticism I hear among people and see on Facebook and other social media is that church folk are holy hypocrites. People who see themselves as saints, but when you dig under the forced smiles, you discover what the local people in Corinth did. Antagonistic control freaks. Spiritual narcissists and egomaniacs, people who are consumed by proper doctrine by day and drunken sex fiends by night. This is why many people, like our young hippie gardening friend, will go looking for community right outside the stores of a church, but will never actually step inside. And so despite the hunger, the need for The need among people for community, church is the one of the last places they look to fill that hunger. The last places, you know. Stop right short of the church's front doors. But you know, I wonder if the problem, I wonder if the problem has been less that church and church people are imperfect and that church is made up of people with brokenness. But a sort of misunderstanding of community to begin with. I heard another pastor who once said that whenever somebody says that they would never be involved in a faith community, that whenever somebody says church isn't for them because, quote, the church is full of hypocrites, Her response is the one we said together at the beginning of the sermon. 
Of course it is, she'd reply, but there's always room for one more. The church is full of hypocrites, but there's always room for one more. And we can be so naive about community, thinking that it's just a lovely place where everyone is nice and polite to each other, everyone follows proper etiquette and procedures. It's a place where nobody ever is made uncomfortable by another person. People who share the same beliefs and political views, that's really important in the United Church of Canada, I think, often. Less the beliefs part, more the political views part. We often have this idea that true community is actually doing our best to avoid conflict, to avoid annoyance, and to avoid hypocrisy. So often in the church, we've understood the Christian life to be to present a saintly exterior and make sure others knew that too. And to make others sure that others presented a saintly exterior. We thought of our communities as companies of the righteous, of people who have our act together, whether it's through personal morals or political and social views we hold. And so we could compete with each other to try to climb to the top of the podium of righteousness not realizing that the higher the pedestal, if you win first place, the bigger the fall. But community, deep community, true community, isn't about this at all. Paul knew all of these things about the church in Corinth, all those terrible things that I told you. In fact, he's writing this letter in response to all the numerous complaints he's received about their behavior. And believe me, he doesn't just let all of it slide. He doesn't say, well, anything goes. I'm fine. I'm okay. You're okay. Later in the letter, he takes them to task. And yet, he begins this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and calls to, called to be saints. And he goes even further. He takes it up a notch. Not only are they saints, but he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus, for in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge and every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are these deeply flawed people with troubling behavior, saints, Paul says, not only are they saints, he thanks God for them. He thanks God for them. They are saints because Christ is active among them. They are holy because God's Spirit is at work among them, changing hearts and changing lives. In spite of their faults and their brokenness, Paul thanks God for them. And this is the beginning point for true community. 
And this is what my maybe why communities of Jesus, true communities of Jesus, are unique. What we have to offer that other communities may not. That we are drawn here, not in our perfection as perfect people looking to get more perfect or maintain perfection, not as nice people who just need to get nicer and maintain our niceness, nor simply as dirty, rotten sinners who just need to be put in our place. No, the beauty of a community of faith rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ is that we know ourselves, we know ourselves as broken, imperfect, limited. Maybe our limits and imperfections aren't quite to the same extent of the Corinthians. Maybe they are. We are prone to fail and fall short. We know this, yet we also know ourselves and others as beloved and blessed. We also know ourselves as set apart, graced by God, our creator, not by anything that we've done, but by who loves us. We can be our true selves, knowing and trusting that the light that reveals all our perfections is the same light that brings healing, hope, and new life. That's the real draw. That's the real draw of church. This is the kind of community that will satisfy our hungers like no other will, and that's why Paul begins his letter with such nice, flowery language. Brothers and sisters, the wonderful thing and the most important thing about our community isn't actually us. The thing that makes our community unique, different than other kinds of community, is the God who has enriched so many of us in speech and knowledge of every kind in ways that we never thought possible. It's Christ who has mended hearts and reconciled relationships and continues to do so. The spiritual gifts that flow through so many of us that make such a difference, sometimes small, sometimes huge in each other's lives and in the world. What's unique and beautiful about this community is the presence of the God who called us together into the fellowship, the community of Jesus in the first place. Who fills all our hungers and who will strengthen us to the end. Not because of ourselves, but so often in spite of ourselves. So, the next time I'm standing beside a community garden, or another public place, chatting about our culture's deep hunger, deep thirst for authentic community, I'll nod my head and agree. But then, 
I'll thank God for you and this community of faith. Not because of everything you do or who you are, but because of the God who has touched us all and brought us together. The church is full of hypocrites, I'll say, but there's always room for one more. There's room for me, and by God's grace, there's room for you too. Amen.